So well done. You got up an hour earlier. Um, I had a bit of a struggle with that, I confess. Um, Anyway, this morning we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of James. And we're calling this series Walk This Way because this book of the Bible, this letter of the Bible is about the practice of the Christian life. It's about how we live out our faith. And the way James wants us to walk is the way of wisdom. And we saw, if you hear the first week, we talked a little bit about how this book is like wisdom literature in the New Testament. You might recognize it as, as bearing some similarity to the book of Proverbs, for example. Uh, there are these little aphorisms, these little sayings that might be familiar to you. Um, it's full of wisdom that way. And James wants us to walk the way of wisdom together as well. It's not just an individual thing. He's really asking us what kind of community would we create together if we were to actually live out our faith. So last week we looked at chapter 3 and it was talk this way as we walk this way. We saw how our language and how we speak is central to the true Christian life. And today we're going to pick up right where we left off with the wisdom that is necessary for being a people who are a people of peace, a church of peace, and a church that is seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city around us as well. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Dear God, we thank you that that your word is alive. Um, We encounter lots of words in our lives. It seems like we're bombarded with information all the time, and uh, we, I think, are confused about what to do with it all. So, Holy Spirit, you who are wisdom to us, would you come and make your truth, make your grace hum in our hearts? Would you attune us to your rhythm, to your ways, to your love? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reading James 3, we're starting from verse 13, and then going on into chapter 4 up to verse 10. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may, get, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people... Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. So I, I don't know if you've witnessed any conflict in your life recently. Maybe an outright fight. I remember once seeing an altercation in a parking lot, not a church parking lot, fortunately. There was a pickup truck driver who had left his engine on. It was idling, and of course fumes were coming out of the exhaust. And then a woman in a hybrid car pulled into the spot next to him. She got out of her car and she looked over, and I saw her frown, and I saw her make the decision to engage. She asked him to turn off his engine. It wasn't rude the way she asked, but it wasn't polite. He said no. She started to get into some reasons. It was against city bylaws to let your car idle. It was bad for the environment as well. Pretty soon they were shouting at each other. They were behaving as if the world depended on each one of them getting their way. For her, getting him to turn off his engine was the solution to climate change. For him... All personal freedom and democracy hung in the balance. What causes quarreling and fighting among us? How can we find peace? These are everyday questions and urgent questions for us. And these are the questions that James is asking in chapter 4 of his letter. James, the author of this letter, was probably the brother of Jesus. He had become the key leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And James writes this letter to address other Jewish followers of Jesus who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, all of whom were facing similar problems to the ones that we face today in the church. When James talks about friendship with the world, he's talking about an approach to life which puts our desires first and disregards God. He's not saying Christians should shut themselves off from the world and look with suspicion on anyone outside of their gated communities. Rather, his advice is pretty simple. He says, submit to God. Be humble and God will come close to you. And so really what we have here in this reading is a reflection on Christian community. First of all, James establishes the goal, which is wisdom that leads to peaceful community. Secondly, he identifies a problem, and that is this selfishness that leads us into quarrels and fights. And third, he finds a way through that. He finds a resolution, and that is humility from above. So first of all, peaceful community. How do we get there? Well, James definitely cares about relationships. 
He knows that we live out our faith, and he's most interested in that, right? The practicality of what it means to be a Christian. He knows we live our faith out in community, and he wants us to be fruitful. Last week, at the end of our reading, he asked if a fig tree could produce olives or a grapevine could produce figs. And clearly, he's, what, he's, what he's getting after there is, is the harvest. He wants to see fruit. And now in our reading this morning, in verse 18, he wants us to have a harvest of righteousness. And that, that word righteousness isn't a word we often encounter in our day-to-day lives, but it's in the Bible a lot, and it's a really important word in the Bible. And it, it just means that James wants us, as God wants us, to be right with God. He wants our relationships to be right with one another also. And for that to happen, he says that we need wisdom so we can plant seeds of peace. In other words, we need to build communities together where there's harmony. James wants us to have real faith. He wants us to have faith that changes our lives. And so basically he's telling us here that our lives aren't going to change, that the good things we want to see happen will not happen apart from significant involvement in a local community that is seeking peace and harmony. And really that's an issue for us. That's the first challenge because we live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. And this is deep within you. You may not even be aware of it. If you've grown up in the West, not all of you have, but if you have, this message, this individualism has been pounded into you that you are who you choose to be. You are who you decide to be. You can be whatever you want to be. Basically, that you make yourself. But most societies in the world, certainly going back in history, wouldn't agree with that. Nor would social science, nor would the Bible. Scripture says that you're basically the product of your family, your culture, your primary community. And so your beliefs are more the result of the relationships in your life than your rationality, than the choices you make. I have a friend who's a teacher, and she recently saw an exchange between a couple of grade one boys. One kid butted in front of the other kid. And the kid who had been butted in front of calmly gave this offending child the finger. Not just one finger, though. It was double-fisted fingers. How does a six-year-old boy do that with what my friend described as such cool, steady contempt? Only, only if he's seen it done lots of times before at home. It comes from community. We know this, I think. As a teenager, you might say, I'm never going to be like my father or my mother. I'm going to be different. And maybe in your 20s, you still live with that illusion a little. But the older you get, the more you see how profoundly you've been influenced by your family, that you are actually like the person you said you would never become like, or that you've reacted to them in such a way that maybe their influence on you is even greater. Again, you're shaped by your community by your family. Here's another example. Over my years as a pastor, one of my favorite things is hearing stories about how people's lives have been changed by their experience of church community. 
But real change only happens one way. The Bible says that we're called together as Christians to love one another, to spend time together, to bear with one another, to confess our sins to one another, to go directly to one another when there's conflict, to forgive one another, to share what we have, our possessions with one another. You can't do that in here. I don't care how great the service is on a Sunday morning. You can't do that in here. If this Sunday morning is the main way you experience church, you may feel better, but you won't get better. Because it's only in community that you get better. Your community shapes you. The people you eat with, laugh with, cry with, play with, serve with, the people you ask for help from. And so embodied face-to-face, consistent community, that's who you become like. And that's primarily what forms you. There's no hope for change without deep involvement in community. Now the challenge in all of this, the problem is that We are selfish people, and that leads us to fight with one another. And you see it here in verse 2 of chapter 4. James says, you want something, but you don't get it. And the Greek word there for for wanting or desiring is hedne, which is what we get our English word hedonism from, the pursuit of pleasure, a, a philosophy of life that values pleasure above anything else. It's what Ariana Grande sings about in her song, Seven Rings. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. So you take whatever you can get to please yourself. Your comfort, your convenience, your control. You put your needs ahead of everyone else's. It's the natural thing to do. It's our instinct, right? And you do this in a hundred little ways. That's why we quarrel and fight. That's why community and family breaks down. George MacDonald famously said that the one principle of hell is this. I am my own. And that's one of two ways you can live. I am my own. My life for me. Or you can live based on my life for you. Your needs above my needs. You may think that that first way, my life for me, is most prevalent, but actually that's not how life works. For example, no child has ever lived apart from the sacrifice of its parents. All of us are here today only because someone has lived by this principle for us, this laying down of life. The reason you're here is that for 18 years or so, more or less, your parents gave up their freedom. They gave up their independence. They gave up their money. And this laying down of life that's involved in all kinds of pursuits where there's sacrifice, it always demands a death. It's death to my agenda if I give up my time to help you. It's death to my privilege if I don't hold on to a grievance that I have against you. But this principle of my life for yours is the only way 
that life is possible and to embrace it is to live. But to reject it, to live my life for me, is to die spiritually. And so there is heaven or there is hell lurking in your living room. Last night, Judith was doing a puzzle, and I got some chips and some salsa. There was no Leafs game, so I was a bit sad. You know, sad the way a masochist is sad when he doesn't have a sharp needle pointed in his eye. Anyway, I went over to my wife and I sat near her, watching her do this puzzle. I'm not a big puzzle guy, so I'm fascinated why people do that. I I was eating my chips, and apparently these chips make a loud crunching noise. (laughs) And this is really bad if you're trying to do a puzzle. So Judith asked me to stop eating my chips and to go somewhere else to eat them. That didn't seem reasonable to me. I only had a few chips left, too. So I stayed. Her puzzle was fascinating. And she really wasn't very happy about that, I have to tell you. Don't worry, it didn't escalate much from there. But that exchange reminded me later... Of course, only later, of just how basic this is. You want what you want, and you won't give it up. And so a hundred times a day, when you see someone coming, someone you know may get in your way, well, on the basis of this principle, my life for me, you're going to avoid them. But on the basis of my life for you, you let them come. You make yourself available. When you forgive, when you volunteer your precious time, when you're part of a team and you don't push to get your way, when you keep your mouth shut and don't insist on having the last word, these little deaths to your individual needs, they lead to a resurrection of community. Because when someone lays down their privilege and does something for you, you come back and you say thank you. And the minute you do that, there's community. Because thank you means I owe you. And I'm recognizing that with gratitude. In heaven, that recognition is universal and it is joy. In hell, there are no deaths at all. Because the instant you say thank you, there's a bond. You just lost some of your independence, didn't you? You owe that person. You owe it to help them. There's an obligation of community that ensues, and you're bonded to that person, even if it's in the smallest way. In heaven, everyone loses their independence, and they serve joyfully. In hell, everyone says, I don't ask for anything. Don't ask anything of me. It's the loneliest place in the universe. Community breaks down when you want to please yourself most of all. And ultimately, it's our pride that stands in the way of righteous relationships. And that can be the kind of pride that we think of first, the kind of pride that insists on getting its own way, 
Or it can be the kind of pride we call low self-esteem. When you are always feeling like a failure, when you're feeling bad about yourself or guilty, that also kills community. It's still about you. It's still your self-preoccupation. And so both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex follow this principle of my life for me. So how do we resolve this dilemma? Well, James says there's only one way through this challenge, through this conflict, through our predicament, and that is by humility. The humility that comes from above and that has to manifest itself in action. So what does that look like? Well, not what we might expect. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word humility, I I think normally I would picture kind of a quiet, passive posture. But that is not how humility is described in the Bible. In verse 7, here in chapter 4, it says, Submit to God and resist the devil. So humility actually equips you to take on the devil. In other words, if you're humble, you're not going to be afraid of anything. Does that make sense for us? Well, think of Moses as as an example. In the book of Numbers, Moses is identified as the humblest man on earth. And what did Moses do? He went to Pharaoh. He went to the greatest ruler in the world And he demanded that Pharaoh give up this free labor force he had, that the Egyptian economy was based on, that his wealth and power was based on. Now, Moses wasn't courageous in spite of being humble. He was courageous because he was humble. So let's define humility biblically. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I'll say that again. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And you can do that when you're confident in your identity. When you know that God loves you and will take care of you no matter what. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's knowing God is with you always, no matter what you're going through. And so how can a humble person forgive and not get defensive when they're attacked? How can they say sorry quickly and actually mean it? Because they don't care at a deeper level if you think badly of them. They know who they are. And so humility is this incredible confidence. Proud people, on the other hand, are so insecure that they can't forgive. They get angry, they fly off the handle, They let their emotions rule them. Humble people are kind and patient and poised. And all of that comes from inside. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do you get that? Well, the rest of chapter 4 tells us that you can be humble if you grasp this wisdom from above. If you grasp the upside-down principle at the heart of God's love for you. 
Look at verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or in verse 10, it says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The Bible says this over and over again. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, not exhausted. (laughs) The first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you will find it. What does all that mean? Well, it means if you lay down your life for God, if you lay down your life for another person, if you do that a hundred times a day in little ways, if you die to your own power and your own control, you will actually get your life back and you will get it back forever. But if you hold on to power, if you say, I don't want to serve other people, I would rather have them serve me, my life is for me, then you're going to lose it. And your life will more and more resemble hell. And that's where you'll be headed. The way to have true power is to give your power away and to serve. That's the Jesus way. And the way to feel eternally great about yourself is to admit to God that you're lost, that you are a hopeless, helpless sinner. And then to repent. And the passage we read ended on a lot of gloom and tears and in a place that you might not want to find yourself. But when you see that that repentance is the beginning of true humility, and that true humility leads to this incredible inner confidence of knowing how worthwhile you are to God, that he loves you. And it leads to the courage to forgive and to lay down your life for others, which enables community to flourish, which enables peace to happen in your life, in your community. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, I can see what you're saying, Alex. I know you're right, but... This my life for your life is, is hard, and I can't live like that. I, I know what James is asking, I know what God's calling me to do, but I've tried it, and I can't do it. I've failed at it. And that's where I think there's a little phrase in the middle of this passage that helps us like nothing else. If you look at verse 6 with me, It says that God gives us more grace. And those words are like a window opens onto a new horizon for us in the middle of whatever darkness we're struggling with right now today. Those words point to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, who lived this out, who was the only one who lived this out, and he did that for you and for me. In Jesus, we see the ultimate my life for yours in a way that we never dreamed possible. In the most incredible act of humility, God comes down and enters into all of our fighting and our quarreling. He takes the brunt of it. Jesus humbled himself perfectly. Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness and the devil fled from him. Jesus lived this out for us. 
But if you go on and look at verse 8, when Jesus did what James talks about here, when he tried to come near to God, God did not come near to him at that moment. It was the consequence for our sin. And so Jesus was left alone. Jesus was abandoned. And now if you try to draw near to God, because of what Jesus did, if you try to humble yourself, and even if you fail at that, if you try to serve others and you struggle with it, he will draw near to you because he died in your place. And so we see in what I think is the most encouraging way imaginable, his life for ours. His life at the heart of our community. His life enabling Courtright Church to be who we are called to be. And this is the hope we gather around every Sunday morning. This is the resurrection hope for each one of us and for our life together. And as we gaze on Jesus... That's why we're here. God gives us even more grace to live it out together. And so on that foundation of grace, I will say to you again, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that You want us to live at peace with one another. And that is why you have pursued us. You never stop pursuing us. And we see that most of all in Jesus. Lord, we we want to be left alone a lot of the time. We turn away from you. But you don't give us what we want, even when we deserve it. And so we pray for more of this wisdom of yours, this wisdom from above. Holy Spirit, you are wisdom and you lead us on that way. You change us in ways that we could never do on our own. Would you come into each of our hearts and minds? And would you make that possible? And Lord, right now, in the silence, I want to invite some of us here this morning are going through incredible difficulty And so this weird, this, this word wisdom is a little weird. It, it seems, I don't know, a little distant. But in this moment of silence, I want to ask you, with whatever you're facing right now in your life, to cry out to the Holy Spirit for help, for wisdom from above, for him to give you more grace. Would you do that now? Dear God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life he calls us into. We thank you for the promise of peace. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.